What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. As you may already assume, my life is all about stories. I love telling and reading stories. I love talking to people about stories. I really believe that stories are one of the fundamental ways we communicate as human beings. This is why I've spent most of my life in the story business. While a great deal of my focus has been on books and reading and helping children learn how to engage with stories others have written, some of my career has centered around helping children create their own stories. As you know, here at Rachel's World, we advocate for all forms of literacy, and writing and making stories is a big part of that. That's why I was so excited when I heard that Pixar and Disney have teamed up to promote the art of storytelling by providing lessons and videos online that take learners through the process so in turn they can learn to create their own stories. Covering topics such as character modeling, effects, and color science, these online lessons take learners through the process and even build in some lessons that let students practice what they've learned. The other great thing incorporated here is lots of math, because that is really essential when it comes to digital animation. So along the way, children will learn about 2D shapes, curves, lines, geometric transformation, and algebraic equations with more than one variable. Through visual storytelling mediums, students are able to express their creativity in unique ways, while at the same time learning important engineering and math skills that are essential to the art. Provided at pixarinabox.org through Khan Academy's online learning platform, these lessons are very accessible for students in grades five and up. And here at Rachel's World, we suggest it is a perfect way for budding storytellers to learn the craft straight from the talented artists and engineers who know it best. If you could travel back in time, where would you want to go? Prehistoric Europe? The land of the ancient Inca civilization? There's always Egypt, with its untold mysteries, marvels, and mummies. Our first guest, young adult book author Jennifer Nielsen, takes her readers on flights of fancy in her book series, Mark of the Thief. The setting is ancient Rome, with some magic mixed in. Nielsen visits with Rachel about her work behind the scenes, including the research that goes into these books. Jennifer Nielsen is a New York Times bestselling author. Her books include The Ascendance Trilogy, beginning with The False Prince, The Mark of the Thief series, and A Night Divided. Here's Rachel and Jennifer Nielsen. We're in studio with Jennifer today. Welcome, Jennifer. Oh, thank you so much. I am excited today to talk about your book, The Mark of the Thief. I think this is such an intriguing book, and I think your our listeners out there are just going to love to hear a little bit more about it. So to start off, give us a little kind of summary about what the book, or if you want to go into the, the series, uh, what, what it's about. 
Uh, Mark of the Thief is、um, an ancient Roman story、uh, that is told with magic, and it is about Nicholas Calva, who is kind of the lowest rung of society. He's、uh, a mining slave, and he accidentally stumbles upon、um, Julius Caesar's lost magic. And when he steals it and comes into possession of this magic, the entire weight of the Roman Empire is about to fall on this kid to get control of him and that magic. Which is just an amazing summary. I think you know there should be trumpets blaring right now. <laughs> I、like, hear、yeah, trumpets when I say trumpets, yeah. yeah, because it really is such an amazing premise. But you really drew very heavily on Roman culture and civilization. So why that? Why did you pick that? What was the inspiration that helped you say, yeah, I have to write about this kind of era, but add that magic into it? You know, it started with. The object that is pictured on the cover of the book, which is kind of a, a golden amulet,、uh, that was called a bulla, B-U-L-L-A. In ancient Rome, the kids used to wear these, and their families would fill them full of gems or, or different trinkets as amulets of good luck. That's actual history, and so Julius Caesar would have had one as a young person. And so I was fascinated just by kind of the idea of the bulla, but then I combined it with Julius Caesar's claim in actual history that he was the literal descendant. Of the goddess Venus, so he would be like, "Oh, Venus, that you all worship? Well, that's Grandma." All right, and he would do that to just make himself seem so powerful, so inevitable as leader. For me, it was the combination of those two elements and the question: What if Caesar was telling the truth about who he was? Because if he was telling the truth, Julius Caesar would have been a demigod. And what if the magic that he had from the gods was kept in his bola, which then becomes lost after his death? So, with a combination of those、um, elements, it was always going to be an ancient Roman story, just with this fusion of magic into the world. I love that contrast between, you know, the greatness and. The potential greatness, I guess. So, did you think about that when you were creating this this world that was going to bring this magic and this character to to this really important leadership role? Yeah, I, I thought heavily about that because I really wanted, you know, throughout the series to give Nicholas a place to go and a place to kind of grow and expand. So, I literally put him at the lowest place he could have been、um, to be a Roman mining slave. You had an average. Of、um, maybe three years working as a slave of survival, it was so dangerous and just such awful, awful work. And so I just put him as far from the outside of society, just because the Roman Empire itself—it was so massive and so powerful—that I loved the idea of taking this kid who has no education, no friends, no skills, and putting him up against one of the greatest civilizations the world has ever produced. And I love that. You know, how do we build this world to make it actually work? And that—that's always been interesting to me, particularly when you're doing something that's historically grounded. I mean, there's there's real history here that you're talking about. So, how do you do that? How do you take that real history and stay? True to it, but yet at the same time, do what you need to do to take the story where it needs to go in this more magical way. You know, Rome was very challenging.、Um, you know, I explained this to my editor. I said, you know, there are people who have postdoctorate careers, and then they go on for forty years studying nothing but ancient Rome, and the amount of information we have about that civilization and the hundreds of years in which it existed is just staggering. And I said, the the 
the difficulty in researching is that sometimes I don't even know to ask the question. So I'm hoping just to stumble upon the answer. For example, like the fashion sense, like you would not have worn a sandal with a toga. That would have been nobody would have done that. You would have worn、um, a wrap that goes higher, a boot with a toga, and like. I didn't even know to ask that question. I just got lucky to find it because I know that somewhere I knew if I get this book wrong, somewhere out there, some postdoctorate, you know, expert on ancient Rome is going to be like,、uh, "Excuse me, ma'am, nobody would have worn a sandal." And I, you know, and so it was very intimidating.、Um, I went to Rome. And spend a lot of time there studying it, and most of my time in Mark of the Thief was actually in the research, just making sure, because I thought if a kid reads this book and gets a perception about ancient Rome, I want it accurate. I don't want to put something out there that is not what Rome was. So now I have to fuse fantasy in with it. Fantasy came in to all of the questions that are not there answered about Julius Caesar's claim. That's actually true. I just fuse in the question of what if it was true? Then what would happen? So I think it's very easy to understand what's real and what's not. Generally speaking, if I put out something there that is not magic related, that actually was the way it would have been in Rome. So, what did you use for research? What were the sources that you went to besides visiting and being yeah, there? Yeah, being what, there and what actually, other kinds of things did you study? Oh, every everything in existence I would have studied. So,、um, I was on websites and I would read books. You know, I got in a book that was. Just out of print, but it was talking about what life would have been like for the gladiators of Rome, and it was just very, very well documented. And you know, I would talk with experts, and、um, I used a lot of maps of recreations just to get a sense of scale and a sense of distance, because details like that we don't always think about, you know. And and so everything that was available to me in every form, I was using. Well, and I think that you came out very accurately with that because I get that sense of accuracy when I read the book. Have you had any of those postdocs say, "Oh, sorry, <laughs> they wouldn't have eaten olives on that day"? <laughs> you know, somebody wrote a blog where they took issue with me about one of the key points of the book, and she was claiming her her expertise status. And I went back and rechecked my sources to make sure I was fine. And according to the sources, I was still okay factually, but. I'm sure she's not too happy with me on <laughs> well, that. I mean, and that's tricky too, because particularly with history, there's different ways to interpret it. There's different ways to look at it, and even though it may be factually correct, maybe your interpretation takes. Well, and when you have this empire that is over hundreds and hundreds of years, if you are an expert on one hundred-year block of time. In a different hundred-year block of time, it could be wildly、yeah. different, and so you know it's that's fine. That's that's all fine. I'm I'm very proud of the story and. And and hope readers will enjoy it. Well, I certainly did, and I really appreciate the time and effort you took to the accuracy and、Thank、really、you. building that in because I think that that is a wonderful way to give that sense of time and history in a new way that you know people may not be interested in the Roman Empire until they read Mark of the Thief. Yeah, it's been great. It's been great to see the reader response of of kids who are like, I didn't know anything about Rome, and same similar to what Percy Jackson did for kids interested. In mythology, you know, if you can phrase, you know, put the story in a context they're going to enjoy, they will absorb the facts along with it. And to understand too that that different readers read differently. You know, primarily.
primarily for boys. Boys, um, there's a reason, you know, boys tend to be a little heavier on the nonfiction side. Boys like to read for information. And not that girls don't, but we see... Um, a lot of boys who will go do the nonfiction research after. And and if we can get our young men and our young women doing that, I think that's wonderful. I think that it's so true. But sometimes that's really difficult, as you kind of notice, as you kind of noted when you were talking about the research. That's so much research that you did and all of these types of things. And that can be challenging. So what was the most challenging part of these books? What what did you find to be the most difficult? Um, really, the, it's the stuff that is not readily available in research. You know, we, we have everything. We know everything about the Colosseum and how it worked and about the temples and that sort of thing. It's in the little things like what would happen just out on the streets, bring up the picture of a street and not the main street, the side street or, you know, in the villas, you know, getting those little daily life moments and making them feel real and genuine, I think was very, very tricky for me. And that's the interesting thing about this book, too, is there's some grand things in the Colosseum and those kinds of familiar places that we all identify with Rome. But there also are these, you know, the side streets and the small places that that really add richness to the story. So did you really try to balance that kind of known and unknown as you wrote the book? Yeah, well, that's where actually being in Rome had so much value. Because, you know, I can look up pictures and videos of other people going. It's when I'm standing on a main street in Rome, and then I say, well, let's go off here to the left. I want to see this. And then understanding how closed in it might have felt, or how the sewer water literally rises right to the surface of the road, and catching the smell. I mean, there's so much of history that is just as it was. And and so it's a remarkable experience then to absorb all five senses and bring all five senses into the book. So how do you do that in your writing? How do you capture those senses? What What is your approach to capturing that in words, since we can't taste or smell what's going on. How do you do that? You know, um, one of the things that I toured was, you know, beneath the Colosseum where the, the Roman slaves would have worked for the for the Venatio, for the animals waiting. And, and just to be under there and to understand how warm I was, and that was October. And imagine what would that have been like in the middle of the summer in that closed-in space where you've got all of those animals and bodies pressing against each other. And so it's very, very easy when you're standing there to put yourself in that situation. And then I just write how I would have felt being under there. And so I describe it for Nicholas, but from my own experience of having stood right in that place. Well, thank you for bringing your own experience to the pages, because it's an extraordinary book. And I hope our listeners will now be intrigued to go and check it out. Oh, I hope Read it for themselves. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Appreciate it. Young adult book author Jennifer Nielsen describing her series Mark of the Thief, a story that takes place in ancient Rome, but with a fictional overlay of magic. Next on Worlds Awaiting, Rachel welcomes librarian Rebecca O'Neill. They'll be discussing a common predicament. We've all known young readers, many of them teens, who want action and more intense reading, but may not yet have the necessary reading ability. Instead of giving up altogether, Such readers really just need to find their favorite themes and genres written at their reading level. Rebecca O'Neill is a collection development librarian at the Westerville Public Library in Ohio, where 10 years in youth services was perfect preparation for ordering youth materials. 
When she's not tricking you into reading all of her favorite titles, she's most likely creating her next tiny drawing or flipping through yet another lavish book about home decor. Here's Rebecca and Rachel. We're chatting with Rebecca today. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Thank you so much. I am so excited to talk to you today about a really important topic that I don't think a lot of parents and adults understand. I think we librarians know a lot about this, but this is the topic of high-low books. So maybe start for us, what is a definition or what are we talking about when we talk about high-low books? Yeah, you'll sometimes see this phrase or hear it, and it's actually the word high and then a slash and then low, referring to books that have a high interest level and then their vocabulary or their readability level is lower. Um, And readability is kind of how easy it is for a reader to understand that text with the vocabulary mixed with the, the presentation, like how big the font is and how long the lines are. So why is it important that we have this really high content with lower reading accessibility level? There's often a gap when readers are learning to read and they, um, you know, they may actually know how to read, but if they start to struggle or become reluctant readers or what I heard in an interview recently was dormant readers, uh, which I love, just suggesting the idea that they haven't gotten that reading itch woken up in them. But they often feel keenly this gap between the books they can read and the topics that they want to read about. So, you know, of course, they could read from the children's section or the books that they might have read when they were in grade school, if you're talking about teens. But high-low books sort of bridge that gap, and they have the higher interest topics for older readers, but the lower reading level for those who are reading below their grade level. So I'm I'm right in saying that these books are really more focused on probably older readers that are going to be wanting more action, more intense content, but yet may not have the reading ability to maybe read uh, adult books or young adult books that have that higher reading level. Right. I do think that mostly when the high-low conversation comes up or if you're talking about actual high-low publishers, they're usually aiming at a teen reader. So how have you found these books to be useful, particularly in your work as a librarian? Well, I do meet a lot of readers who are in that gap. They're, you know, what they, what they would want to read about or what their, the books their peers are reading they've struggled with. And if they take some kind of leveling test and pick out a book at that level and see that it's in fact quite juvenile, that will be an instant turnoff. The times I've seen it happen, it's just a matter of finding a book that will, you know, hook the reader and make them not feel inept at reading. And then once they flip that switch of confidence of I can actually do this, and there are books out there that I like, then they'll just, you know, do that magical thing of turn around and ask for what else is there like this. Often you only need one Thing to, to flip them into that. So I, I think that's another great point. These types of books do then tend to be more transitional. So it's not like a reader is going to stay with these books for extended, extended periods of time. They're more likely to read some of these in this category and then develop those skills that they'll need to then move on to other things. Well, I like that word transitional. Um, and, you know, librarians aren't 
reading specialists, so I can only say from observation that, you know, when you, your goal is just to fan that love of reading or find that spark, if a book will do that and then, you know, give someone the confidence to go for a book that's a little bit higher of a reading level, then that's, you know, you can't really discount the power of that. Yeah, I, I agree totally. I think finding that right book and that right fit can be tricky, and particularly these high-low books. So tell us a little bit about how do we go about finding these kinds of books? What what kinds of things do you do, particularly as you're developing your collections for your library? What, what do you do to find these kinds of great high-low titles? Well, there's a couple things. The most obvious one is there actually are high-low publishers that publish with this audience in mind, and they do it very intentionally with, you know, choosing maybe kind of an edgier topic or a very exciting plot, and um, and then they also format them very carefully, and they, they level them with a, their own, you know, readability formula, and they put the margins a little wider and just make it generally friendlier. So some of those publishers are good places to look when you want to, you know, intentionally have those high-low books in your collection. And then there's also just standard teen fiction that will fit the bill. Like it may not have to be marketed as a high-low book, but it will, you know, if you if you're looking at it and thinking, you know, this is pretty readable, it doesn't have a crazy timeline jumping around, pretty easy vocabulary. I mean, that's one to keep in mind for that same type of reader, even if it's not, it doesn't have, you know, the high-low publisher written on the front cover kind of thing. So what are some of your favorite titles in that category that you might suggest for us? Well, one of my go-to recommendations is Stormbreaker. It's the first Alex Ryder book by Anthony Horowitz. And it's been out for a while, but it's almost impossible to get someone started on that book and not have them read the whole series. It's completely action-packed. You meet the character of Alex Ryder, who's forced to work as a spy for Britain's top secret intelligence agency. And every chapter ending is a little bit of a cliffhanger, and it's just almost impossible to put down. So I really love that one. I also like Scorpions by Walter Dean Myers. That one has a young man, he's only 12, Jamal, when he is pressured to become the leader of a gang. So that's, you know, just a one-sentence hook right there gets most kids wanting to know a little more about how that happened. I think those are two of my favorites, too. I I would say Stormbreaker is probably my go-to high-low title, too. So so there's, you know, double recommendations for that one as well, because that that really is one of those ones that captures the reader's attention, particularly if you want that action-packed, fast-paced, Mm-hmm. but really approachable language and context along those lines. Yeah, exactly. Well, and one of the things that I've also found really useful in this category is humor. I, I think there's a lot of humorous books out there, um, particularly I think of the quintessential title, uh, The Diary of the Wimpy Kid uh, oh, yeah. books. I think those are great things. So is there anything that you can think of along those lines that you'd like to recommend? You could never go wrong with John Cheska. He wrote The Stinky Cheese Man and Other Fairly Stupid Tales, which is actually a picture book, but it was voted for a Teen Choice Award, I think, when it came out. That's one of those where the humor is so sophisticated that it's not really for your preschool picture book audience, but definitely for older readers who are really going to understand the fractured 
fairy tale, which of course is everywhere in teens' lives right now with the TV show Once Upon a Time and all kinds of other things, but uh, Stinky Cheese Man did it first. <laughs> so that one is always fun. And John Cheska also did a biography of his life called Knucklehead, which has some really hilarious read-aloud parts if you um, just want to give a reader a sample by reading them a couple things that happened to him when he was younger. Uh, they will pretty much want to know more about his life. I love that biography. It is it is absolutely hilarious and really a great entree into to, into all of his writing as well. Mm-hmm. And just connects to this thought for me too that that oftentimes when we think about these kinds of readers, we think about fiction, but the reality is there's lots of things like nonfiction, memoir, biography, informational books that really connect to these readers that need high content, but maybe a little lower vocabulary in a much more fundamental way. Yeah, I would definitely say that, especially if people are starting to to look into high-low fiction, is not to overlook, you know, that, like you said, that nonfiction and the graphic novels and even magazines, um, you know, things that are that make reading sometimes just in little smaller pieces or in different formats, and it's still reading. You know, others might say that it's not, but, uh, you know, I'm of, of the philosophy that reading is reading is reading. Well, and all our listeners here at Worlds Awaiting will know that that's the same thing we believe, <laughs> that okay. reading is reading is reading. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation, Rebecca. I am so grateful for your time today. I think this is such an important topic because in my estimation, everybody deserves to be a reader. We just have to figure out how to make it happen. Exactly. I'm so glad I got to the chance to talk to you today. Librarian Rebecca O'Neill talking about high-low books, publications that help the child feel successful and want to keep reading. We finish up the show with some delightful playtime rhymes. You may recognize some of them. Sleepy Fingers, There Was a Little Turtle, Snowflakes, and The Wheels on the Bus. Read by siblings, Eleanor, 14 years of age, Mercy, 12, Solomon, 10, Elisha, 8, Muriel, 3, and Mom, Sarah, Take special note during Wheels on the Bus, where little Muriel seems to think she got the place of honor, piping up at the end of each verse as soloist. My fingers are so sleepy, it's time they went to bed. First you, baby finger, tuck in your little head. Green man, now it's your turn. Then comes tall man great. Pointer finger, hurry, because it's getting late. Let's see if they're all cozy. No, there's one to come. Move over, little pointer. Make room for Master Thumb. There was a little turtle who lived in a box. He swam in the puddles and climbed on the rocks. He snapped at the mosquito. He snapped at the flea. He snapped at the minnow, and he snapped at me. He caught the mosquito. He caught the flea. He caught the minnow, but he didn't catch me. Merry little snowflakes falling through the air, resting on the steeple and tall trees everywhere, topping roofs and fences, capping every post, covering the hillside where we like to coast. But when the bright spring sunshine says it's come to stay, those merry little snowflakes quickly run away. The wheels on the bus go round and round. Round and round, round and round, the wheels on the bus go round and round, all through the town. The wipers on the bus go swish, 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 swish. swish. The wipers on the bus go swish, swish, swish.
all through the town. The baby on the bus says, "Wah wah wah, wah wah wah, wah wah wah." The baby on the bus says, "Wah wah wah, all through the town." The mommy on the bus goes, "Shh shh shh, shh shh shh." The mommy on the bus goes shh 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 all through the town. <laughs> Thanks to the Smith family for sharing some familiar playtime rhymes. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at one thirty p.m. and weekdays at eight thirty p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio Sirius XM Channel one forty three, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.